0: I'll pray us in. Thank you. Dear God, thank you so much for bringing us here today, that we may get to speak into this little metal object and talk about your good word, Lord. Thank you that we may share time together, God, and we may share uh, little bits of the gospel, as well as uh, this work created by a wonderful Christian author, Thank you, God, for waking us up today. Thank you, God, for creating this universe that we may live in. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Yale. Hi guys. Um, we're back with another episode. Um, my name's Alyssa, and I am Yale. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, we just want to welcome you. We are a Christian book club. Um, we hope to learn more about each other through our creator God as we are studying these works by various Christian authors. And we are very excited for what this is going to hold for us in the future. So to start us off today, our icebreaker question uh-huh, is going to be um, Thanksgiving related. So um, what do you do every year for Thanksgiving? And do you have any traditions? That is my question. You can go first. Oh, can I? Yeah.
0: Um, I want you to go. Oh, thanks. That's a really good question. I'd say the only tradition that really comes to mind is we don't do turkey.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: Turkey's a disgusting bird. (laughs) God did not err when he made turkey. He was just having a laugh. (laughs) And so we don't eat turkey.
1: (laughs) What do you eat?
0: We eat ham.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a popular one, too.
0: Yeah, unless you're Muslim. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I was going to say Orthodox Jew, but I don't know. I don't know if they, I don't know if they, they probably, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Cool. hmm <laughs> What about you?
1: <laughs> so for Thanksgiving, every year we usually go to my uncle's house. And just my whole family goes. My whole family lives in the area, which we're very fortunate for. So, we all usually go there. But, um, yeah, we don't really have any traditions other than, like, I mean, I don't even know if this is, like, a tradition. But it seems that every year we try to cook the turkey a different way. Like... Mm. Whether it's in the oven or like we deep fried it one year or like, really? we smoked it one year. Oh, yeah. Like my family gets creative with their turkeys. So that's something I always look forward to is like, how are we going to cook it this year?
0: <laughs> yeah. Before we get any further, let's go back to deep frying a turkey. <laughs> how does like, that work? You
1: know, I have no idea. I didn't watch it. Oh. I just ate it.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. Was it, did it look like fried chicken or was it just like a big old fried bird? So no. it kind of looked yeah it All just looked the place.
1: it looked normal but oh, like okay. it was just like put cooked in oil i guess or okay. like I, I have no idea to be honest mm. like
0: yeah exciting stuff there yeah <laughs> so this year i don't mean how are you gonna cook it this year i don't know like a fire pit
1: to be honest this year i don't really care because turkey just i don't I'm not down for it anymore, really, because um, long story short, guys, since you're not in the loop, we went to Disneyland and we ate giant turkey legs and now I don't want turkey ever again.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm agreeing with that. It was, uh, it just sat in our stomachs and our mouths all day. The whole
1: day, yeah. And
0: the amount of bones, like little (laughs) micro bones all over that bird's leg were out of this world. Yeah. So disgusting. It's like every other bite, I was fighting a toothpick.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a problem.
0: It was. We
1: got But, you know, it.
0: we survived, yeah. and we're here today to talk about Mere Christianity Yeah, by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Last week, we uh, went over chapters one and two from book one. Mm-hmm. Uh, The subtitle of book one is Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. Mm. I don't know if we read that last week, but in chapters one, we went over the law of human nature or that human morality exists and is shared and agreed upon between most everyone. And then in chapter two, we went over C.S. Lewis's argument for morality as a human mechanism entirely separate from instinct. Yeah, I don't know if you remember much from chapter uh, one or two, Alyssa, but would you say that's a good sort of brief overview of what we went over?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He's Great. kind of just establishing like the, the grounds of, hey, we all have this, feel this behavior. What's up with that? You know?
0: Yes. Yeah. And today we're going over chapter three, the reality of the law. And chapter four, what lies behind the law. I'm really excited Mm -hmm. for chapter four because four is when we really start just cresting the ridge to the God argument. Yeah. Because we haven't quite nearly gotten there. We've just kind of gotten to the beginnings of establishing the meaning of that conversation and why it's been held for so long. So I'm excited to rip into it.
1: Yeah. And even still in chapter four, he says we're not even close to getting to like the Christian God yet. So I'm very interested to see what else he's going to talk about before he gets there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and we also need to preface before we start. Um, we are not professionals. We are not, um, you know, theologians or apologists, um professionally
0: scholars definitely yeah not. no
1: not that we are just having a good time we're talking about our opinions and thoughts as um young adults yeah yeah
0: boom yeah boom shakalaka um now we also please forgive us um these chapters were they're short they're short chapters but a little bit dense in his argumentation so we might be going back and forth a couple times um did we agree that i'm reading through this again? Okay. Well, without further ado, I'm going to begin with a paraphrase, um, which might be the wrong word as Alyssa informed me earlier, but a uh, brief review of how C.S. Lewis starts this chapter. And his argumentation is basically that uh, humans are... Wait, let, me, let me Let's see here. Uh, that there are two odd things about humans and one is that they have this shared idea uh, generally speaking of what good is and that good does exist and it's through actions that humans partake in and the second odd thing about humans is that even though they generally all agree to that most of them don't live to that or do that all the time and that's the odd thing that we broke down in chapters one and two Um, from there He goes on to say, You may say what I call breaking the law of right and wrong or of nature only means that people are not perfect. And why on earth should I expect them to be? That would be a good answer if what I was trying to do was to fix the exact amount of blame, which is due to us for not behaving as we expect others to behave. But that is not my job at all. I'm not concerned at present with blame. I'm trying to find out the truth. And that's sort of the interesting thing about the beginning of this book is that he's not necessarily saying where any of these mechanisms come from. He does say that morality is distinct from instinct. I'll say that differently. Different than instinct. And that um, it's something that is different because it's more controllable and something that we feel more strife against. He's also saying that he's trying to find a truth at the bottom of this investigation. He goes on more in this chapter to say that there's a sort of naturalistic law, the law of gravity, for example, that makes rocks fall. There's uh, a natural law dictating plants and how they grow. But unlike rocks and plants, humankind are pulled by this other force. They're pulled by this natural instinctive force that's keeping them alive and fed and, um, and sheltered, but they're also pulled by this other force that is unobservable if you were to look at a human, but you know is there because you are human.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is
0: there anything you do? Would you want to jump in there at all, Alyssa?
1: Oh, no, that was very well put. Um, I think the only thing I have to add is just that the law of human nature isn't the same as the law of nature in science because in science it's like what something does like based on an observation whereas with people it's like what you ought to do but that doesn't always happen sort of thing so yeah yeah
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, he describes it uh, in the book. The laws of nature as applied to stones or trees may only mean what nature in fact does. But if you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it is a different matter. Because we can't really say, well, he ought to do that because you don't really know where his head is at. And we know that as human beings that our heads could be quite anywhere. They could be a million miles away. They could be right on the task they could be in a selfish place, a place full of darkness. I mean, he's um he's really picking apart that a human being isn't as simple as something being observed in nature that it's a part of, but also separate in the most internal way because we are it. So, with this argument, he kind of goes on in my interpretation anyways, to build the argument for free will. I'm going to read a paragraph here. Now, this is really so peculiar that one is tempted to try to explain it away. For instance, we might try to make out that when you say a man ought not to act as he does, you only mean the same as when you say that a stone is the wrong shape namely that what he is doing happens to be inconvenient to you. But that is simply untrue. A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man and do not blame the first. So I in my reading this, I believe this is where we sort of get our idea of free will. And free will comes from this notion that True morality does exist even though we're not quite sure where that morality came from But it's just as stealing from your neighbor is not okay If somebody starves, that's not okay, but under the law of human morality stealing To feed yourself is not necessarily okay, but giving to others so they may not starve is virtuous Now that's why we punish people for stealing And we have a whole system of laws in place in our society, which is in a way almost proving that this invisible force that we all share is real as morality. So we build laws and rules and structures around this morality. But morality is such a fickle thing. He goes on, in war, each side may find a traitor on the other side very useful, but Though they use him and pay him, they regard him as human vermin. So you cannot say that what we call decent behavior in others is simply the behavior that happens to be useful to us. And as for decent behavior in ourselves, I suppose it is pretty obvious that it does not mean the behavior that pays. It means things like being content with 30 shillings when you might have got 3 pounds, doing schoolwork honestly when it would be easy to cheat leaving a girl alone when you would like to make love to her, staying in dangerous places when you could go somewhere safer, keeping promises you would rather not keep, and telling the truth when it makes you look a fool. Some examples there of decent moral behavior that doesn't in fact pay, but humans still practice. He goes on, Decent conduct does not mean what pays each particular person at a particular moment. Still, it means what pays the human race as a whole. Uh, Last week I was arguing for this idea that morality comes from this human mechanism in us that is doing this for survival, an evolutionary benefact. And he goes on later in the next chapter to describe this argument and sort of it's the pointlessness to it which I almost I do agree with after reading it. But in here, as he says, it's to pay off the human race as a whole. So there's this general idea within humans that we all we all ought to be acting in such a way that we would want to live forever, that we'd want to live in a way that the next generation, the generation after and the one after that is improved and bettered for. And I think C.S. Lewis is arguing that that's a divine quality of man, and a level of self-awareness that nothing on earth has attained other than man. You've been pretty quiet over there, sport. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to turn this into a one-man show.
1: Sport. <laughs> I think his argument here is very much for a heart posture, which is is fascinating because that's based on an action that could be the same and yet different like in the in the train example when when he says like if someone takes my seat or the seat that i wanted unknowingly just because they got there first and they sat there well i can't really be mad at them whereas if the second person saw my bag there and removed it and put it somewhere else and then sat there instead i'm mad at that person because of what they did but when you just just look at the action, it's like it's the same action. But when you look at the motives, it's like oh, the motives are totally different. And therefore, I have the right to be upset at this person because their motives were wrong. Well, what's telling you to be upset at that motive versus the other one? I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's like there's a, there's something inside of us that tells us to be that tells us to be negatively reactive to selfish motivation, but positively reactive to virtuous motivation. Yeah. But it's such a strangely tuned mechanism because it is so circumstantial. And instincts, I suppose he's arguing, aren't as circumstantial. I will go on. Now, in his words... Of course, it is perfectly true that safety and happiness can only come from individuals, classes, and nations being honest and fair and kind to each other. It is one of the most important truths in the world. But as an explanation of why we feel as we do, about right and wrong, it just misses the point.
1: This part... Oh, yeah, sorry. Mm-mm. What? No, you... Me? Oh, geez, okay. Um, I think this is interesting because an argument it seems that people try to make for why we should act decently or why we feel the need to act decently is to benefit the people around us or the society that we live in but he explains that that kind of um falls apart because it presents a circular argument so he says like why should i care what's good for society like except for when it happens to, like, pay me personally, and then you would have to respond with, well, because you should be unselfish. And then that brings you to the point that you've kind of started at, whereas, like, you should be unselfish, like, because you should be, you know? It reminds me of trying to argue for why the Bible is the Word of God. It's like, some that's a hard argument to make, and a lot of people don't really know how to make it it's like well, why why do you think the bible is the word of god well because it says so what <laughs> that can, that presents a circular argument just like this one so i think it's interesting that um yeah i like i liked that
0: yeah and he's going to go on to describe the more finite arguments about this point and where this mechanism comes from but he gets to the point as we'll discover that they don't ask the larger question that, uh, religious ideology asks. He goes on sort of as this idea, as Alyssa was saying of the circular argument, He says, if a man asked what was the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals, for trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game, and you would really only be saying that football was football, which is true but not worth saying. Consequently, he goes on later, this rule of right and wrong or law of human nature or whatever you call it, must somehow or other be a real thing. And from his description earlier, my own words now, um, to describe it is really cyclical, as you were saying. And that's kind of the strange mystery about it is why is this mechanism here and where is it coming from and what's the purpose of it leading to? But We'll get into that next chapter. He ends this chapter, chapter three. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that in this particular case, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior, and yet quite definitely real, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. Is there anything you would like to add before we move on to the next chapter, Alyssa? I don't think so. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll say it again i think i said it before but uh, this idea of morality this idea of human or natural human law is what builds actual societal law that we live by today it's like where the ideas of self defense come from and the idea of a jury and really a lot of our legal system is built on this moral principles really the moral principles that there are good people and evil people but they're beyond that that people I'm speaking so poorly but beyond that people are capable of good and evil deeds and it's not black and white which is why we need a jury system which is why we need somebody else to defend and somebody else to prosecute why it cannot just be um, pointing fingers. Hmm basically, because we know that people lie, but we also know people get caught in bad situations. And I think a lot of that is driven by morals and a lot of that's driven by this human empathy that we all feel for each other that I think is grounded in this moral sense of good and evil. And still the mystery continues. Where does that come from? I just want to dip into something real quick, because I noticed in the book, he doesn't mention animals at all, uh, probably because he didn't see a point to. uh, But there are animals that will raise other animals young. There are also animals that will eat their own young. So the animal world has a moral structure too, but it's not not anywhere near as virtuously driven as mankind has, because man will raise other animals. We do it all the time. Now you can get into deeper arguments of why they're doing it. We can do that all day. We can talk about Carol Baskin all day. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, most men aren't going to eat their own babies. Most bears who are male, male bears will eat their own babies. Um, if I knew of other animals, lions. Lions will eat their own babies. Uh-huh. I know. It's a bummer. It is a bummer. Hamsters. Well, I could go all day naming animals (laughs) (laughs) that eat their own babies. (laughs) I will not, though. But if you look at the smartest animals, uh, crows, dolphins, and uh, I forgot the other one, but crows and dolphins are up there. Uh, Crows make tools. Right on. Crows uh, take care of their young. Dolphins speak languages that we can't uncover but we know that they are distinct languages and they differ from region to region of dolphins and they can communicate with each other chimpanzees can also they speak a sort of growlish language to each other and can learn sign language um but chimpanzees also cannibalize each other quite frequently and do terrible other things to each other yeah yeah
1: this is ruining a lot of species for me sorry
0: (laughs) sorry uh dolphins Will commit heinous crimes against each other. That's sort of hard to describe on this uh, kids friendly show. But you can look up (laughs) dolphins perverts and you'll know what I mean. (laughs) Crows, I can't think of anything bad, but I'm sure it's out there. The point is, is that like immoral behavior is a lot more common in nature. Animal nature than human nature, which sets us apart and which is where The foundation for our laws come from is that we are expected as a society not to live animalistically and to live like we have morals
1: yeah yeah that reminds me of something in scripture that god um when he was kind of setting up the land of israel something that he set up it's very interesting there are i i forgot exactly what they're called but there are places of
0: I kicked the mic. I'm sorry. You're probably going to have to start over. I'm sorry.
1: It's okay. Um, In early ancient Israel, God set up regions where the Israelites could flee if something went wrong, but it was accidental, basically. So, for example, um, say you're out like... You're working on your land. You've got a big metal sharp thing that you're... I don't know. Sickle. I don't know anything about gardening. Sure, a sickle. And you're doing stuff and then you like, you swing it back and, oops, your grip was too light. And it flings back and hits your neighbor in the head. Oof. Oh, dear. Well, now you've killed your neighbor on accident. Not again. <laughs> Not again, you say. And then what? <laughs> then you have to go, but, aha, you're saved. Why? Because you can run to a city of refuge. <gasps> where if you do something on accident where your motives were were pure and you didn't do it on purpose you can go there and be safe because if say somebody were to kill someone on purpose or something you know you the family even if they know that they're still going to be pretty mad at you for killing their family member and yeah. they have the right to go after them but they don't have the right to enter the city of refuge so yeah I don't know. I, I just think that was interesting when it comes to motives. It's like God knows that you're gonna mess up and that like things are gonna happen on accident, like without your heart being in the wrong place. I think it's I just I love how he made a way for the Israelites to escape being persecuted when they didn't do something on purpose, you know? I just I love that he looks out for that, but we can move on now. Um Okay. Are we on I think we're
0: Run chapter 4. Chapter 4. Yay. Yeah. What lies behind the law? Um, would you like to start, or shall I? <laughs> you can start. Okay. CS Lewis writes, "When you say that nature is governed by certain laws, this may only mean that nature does in fact behave in a certain way." The so-called laws may not be anything real, anything above and beyond the actual facts which we observe, but in the case of man, we saw this will not do. The law of human nature of right and wrong must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, besides the actual facts, you have something else, a real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. CS is saying that morals or the law of right and wrong is unlike natural law because it is unobservable. It is an experience shared by all humans and not something that can be observed with any of our senses. It's just simply a matter of, of human fact and it's totally invisible. It doesn't get you sick. You don't get sick with morality. (laughs) unless you're the fellow from Crime and Punishment, <laughs> yeah, whose name I still I should have looked up and I didn't. <laughs> um, but it's there. It's there and it's not there. It's there because we agree it's there because we feel it. He goes on. I now want to consider what this tells us about the universe we live in. Ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be. He goes on from here to describe two viewpoints that have been the most common in history and are still the most common today, and that is the materialist view, which I I don't think I could describe better than him. In his words, the materialist view, which is that matter and space just happen to exist and always have existed. Nobody knows why, and that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke, pardon me, to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think by one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets. And so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into a thing like us with a mind capable of finding that out. Beyond that, finding out, going off book here, that we came from uh, a giant explosion Called the Big Bang. That's scientifically a fact, according to scientists. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but from evidence they've gathered that I'm not smart enough to decipher, but we all, all of our institutions trust and we trust them, have determined that's what happened. 14.3 billion years ago, there was a supermassive explosion and all of the universe. Before that was contained on a inside of a very small point in space, not larger than the pin of a needle. And that's the scientific explanation. And as he's saying, it's so fascinating that does not get to the real root of any of it. Yeah. And it doesn't and it. and, And incredibly enough, does not contradict the Bible. It simply gets dates different. But who's to say God's time is our time? Yeah. Who's to say his hour is one of our hours? That would make less sense to me, in fact. Yeah. There's something called um, the galactic calendar, I think, or maybe it's the universal calendar. And it's basically, I, I, I don't know if they use the Bible, the Bible's time frame or what they do exactly. But it's like trying to, to get you an, a reference for how small humanity is on this calendar. Let's say all of the universe being created was one month up till now. So from the very beginning of time that we can know from our measurements, uh, from our machines and data, our instruments can detect, we call that first second, first moment of the first month. If we're going on that scale, we are only at like, 12 seconds of the entire galactic calendar. That's evolutionarily 200,000 years is 12 seconds on this calendar. That's how small we are. That's how small this moment in time is in the grand scale of God's plan.
1: Sounds like God's 12 seconds to me.
0: But, What's so interesting about this materialist argument is that it really begins and ends with itself. And it does not answer the question of why or what is the point.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet, but this is basically what we're talking about. He's What he's asking on the next page is, say we discovered like everything there was to know about the observable universe and how everything works and oh good we know everything but why is everything still and even still you you're not gonna know where it came from or what made it even if there was a pinpoint in the universe that was like the smallest bit of matter or energy or whatever it is i don't know much about science but what made that (laughs) or what is that? (laughs) or
0: Why is that?
1: Yeah. Why is that? Um, Why are we, you know, I don't know.
0: It's not answered. Yeah. And it's, that's what the religious people are getting to. And that's what the second view is, is the religious view. We were just went over the materialist view. Now the religious view as described by C.S. Lewis, according to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind Than it is like anything else we know that is to say it is conscious has purpose and prefers one thing to another and on this view it made the universe partly for purposes we do not know but partly at any rate in order to produce creatures like itself i mean like itself to the extent of having minds yeah and now that's such a more fascinating approach philosophically because it opens the door to much more humanist ideas of the universe and purpose it becomes very poetic and it makes sense now it's 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 so it's i'd say like corrupted almost by our human nature and it's so inspired by our human nature this idea but it it makes so much sense to us i think because we don't really make sense to ourselves
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was just learning about that the other day, actually, that sin, if you are religious or um, believe in the Bible, um, the fall of man, you know, story of Adam and Eve, Eve eats the fruit, gives it to her husband, hence the fall, you know, Um, the fall is why we don't have enough or why we can't understand everything, why we can't comprehend everything, which is really ironic because, um, you know, Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they wanted to be like God in that they would know all things, right? But yeah, sin corrupts our knowledge. Like sin makes it so, or like the fall just the, yeah, I don't know. Corruption in the universe makes it so that we can't know everything that we want to know.
0: Yeah, I think, though, it's I interpret it differently. Maybe I have a wrong interpretation. I interpret it that the original sin was our curiosity. And I'm probably taking this from Jordan Peterson, that it was our curiosity. It, it, and it's our curiosity that caused us to go against God, eat the forbidden fruit. And in that action unlocked our minds to question everything and every nature of our reality, which is in turn what led to uh, the fall. It's this like incessant discontentness with the observations in front of us and wanting to dig underneath the lair and underneath the surface. And in a way, it led to so many beautiful things and amazing things. Um, And as I think it was God's plan But I don't think it was his original intention. I think at the beginning we were much like other animals in that we were blissfully living purely on instinct. And then once we ate the fruit, we became more like God than he wanted us to be. And we became aware of good and evil the way he was, the way he is.
1: Yeah, I get that. I like, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I
0: disagree with me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i don't know if i disagree necessarily i just have a different like look at it because yeah i think what happened was essentially okay god said do not eat this fruit that's like that was like the one rule <laughs> of like everything he just created is don't eat this okay okay great and then um you know, they were tempted by the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, and they were saying, oh, God doesn't want you to eat this because then you'll know of all things, right? I think they were tempted and, like, succumbed to that temptation because the evil they were tempted by rejected God and wanted to be, like, its own thing, separate enti- entity, entity from god and like be its own authority and then i think we were introduced to that by satan which is why i don't you know this is so difficult to explain i think a lot of people reject god nowadays because they want to be their own authority it's hard to accept that there is something above you and that you are not yours yeah um and that's like that's that comes straight from satan right that's like what he tempted us with is like see you can have this this will make you your own this will make you like god Mm
0: -hmm. like
1: yeah like haha (laughs) yeah like god in that you are your own authority yeah We've yes. gotten off topic. I'm We've sorry. gotten a little off topic, but
0: I, it's an interesting um, question. And CS was just saying uh, that the religious view is that the universe is made up of constructs similar to a mind and not material. Yeah. Because matter doesn't think. Yeah. Electrons don't think. But a god does. It's, again, not really a god in the sense of like a, a jolly man in the sky. It's a god in the sense of this mind that we can't comprehend or understand. It's, it's just like a conscious entity. Yeah. Um, CS goes on. You cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. Do not think I am saying anything against science. I'm only saying what it is. And it is a very useful and necessary thing too but why anything comes to be there at all and whether there is anything behind the things science observes that is not a scientific question uh-huh. 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 and it's not because it's not something that can be proven it's not something that can be like found it's really a very subjective uh matter yeah this is where I'm going to start talking about movies. (laughs) I'm going to start talking about movies and stories generally. Movies and stories don't work on a science, but they do run by a certain type of uh, pattern, by a certain equation or algorithm. And that general pattern is in three parts. There's a beginning to something, There's a middle of something, and then there's an end of something. And then that pattern gets way more deep as you go into it, but only up to a certain point. And you know when that pattern is striking successfully by the hearts that are viewing it. You can't really show a computer a movie made by humans for humans and expect it to give you a knowing review. An algorithm or a machine can't really see a movie and say, this is good. It can say, this is a movie. (laughs) A human being, however, sees that movie and identifies with what's happening and is driven and moved by some sort of purpose by the end of it. A good movie, anyways, will do that to a person. They'll like, you'll leave the movie theater. You'll leave your living room, your bedroom, your couch, whatever, having paid attention and watched a movie and be like, yeah, yeah, I can. Or man, I can't believe that. Or, we can do this. Or, something needs to be done. And that's when the algorithm fires on all cylinders. That's when you had a character who changed. You had a world that was impacted. And it teaches people that there's a greater purpose to their life. And that they're a piece of a puzzle. That they have no idea of the end result. What it's going to look like. But that they're a piece of it. And I think... A lot of people go into movies who are unreligious and they leave it having had a religious experience without even noticing, without realizing that's what happened to them.
1: That's fascinating. (laughs) That's I really like that. Wow. I've never thought about movies like that.
0: And it's with all art. It's not just movies. Uh, But I think movies is just the most precise way to get that to happen to a person because it's 90 to 120 minutes of concentrated purpose yeah and usually they take place over the span of months or weeks or days and that's usually how the human story unfolds it's never you can have a very eventful day don't get me wrong and there's movies that take place in a day and they're very eventful Mm -hmm. But most people are experiencing their story in the matter of weeks, months, days. I'm sorry, weeks, months, years, days sometimes. And science can't really explain that either. Mm-hmm. I don't think science can fully explain why movies of so many different types uh, affect us the way they do just as science can't really explain religion. There's ideas like, well, survival mechanisms. And I was using some of these ideas earlier. But what C.S. Lewis is getting at is they really are just there to explain something away. They don't really answer the question, the question that science isn't meant to answer. And it's a question that I think art attempts to answer and religion attempts to answer. And that is, why are we here and what purpose do we have? What's it all leading towards? Yeah. C.S. Lewis says, Supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every single thing in the whole universe. The questions, why is there a universe? Why does it go on as it does? Has it any meaning? Would remain just as they were. There is one thing, and only one in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. We know that men find themselves under a moral law which they did not make and cannot quite forget even when they try, and which they know they ought to obey. Anyone studying man from the outside as we study electricity or cabbages, not knowing our language and consequently not able to get any inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did, would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. They would simply, he's saying, look at us and see almost like automatons or machines going along with their programming. Yeah. Just as we observe nature and we call that programming instincts and evolution, that is how we would be observed. But as men, women, we understand there's something underneath our surface. There's a bit more in this code that grants us free will And that's what's causing us to do these things. That's what causes us to be kind of erratic sometimes and make really strange decisions because we understand and know what's happening. We're following this moral law or grubbing up against it. An outside observing alien would be like, what, this guy just took a tank and drove all over San Diego. I don't know why that guy did that. (laughs) That actually happened. Um, Oh. But (laughs) something got crossed and that happened. It wasn't just his code. It was a free will choice, series of free will choices that led him to that.
1: Mm -hmm. What's sad to me is that people actually think that way, like that we are just these kind of like pieces of flesh and our chemicals go off in our brain. And that's why we do the things we do life without thinking about people as more than just like walking bags of chemicals to quote Brian Howard. Shout out to Brian (laughs) Howard. Um it's, it's so sad. And then it's like, what's the point of even being quote unquote good or quote unquote bad to other people? If you're like, that's all you are. Like, I think this moral code kind of establishes something new in that, like, this is how we feel like we should treat each other. You know, it's like, if you're simply like a robot or a cabbage or a stone or whatever you want to call it, like, what does that matter how you treat them? But no, it's like you, you know,
0: There's something more going on, and we call that free will. Yeah, And that free will is the war that's happening inside of us between good and evil. Where that all comes from, we can't answer. Yet. Yet. (laughs) Some people, including I, tried to answer it with the emergent evolution theory, which he goes into a little bit later. But for now, he has another line here that I... uh, I would like to share. C.S. Lewis writes, If there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. So he's saying that the moral code's structure of our universe is something given to us by a creator. The way the ha- a house is given walls, a staircase, a fireplace, floors, the way it's given architectural design and thought. But an architect cannot be a piece of that house. It's his expression through his hands, his life, his, his uh, intention, that, is what forms the house and lives in the house. I think that's such a beautiful metaphor for this for God, for this creator mind of the universe as human beings are expressions of him. And it reminds me I wrote right next to it code. Um, If anybody has ever coded a video game or an app video game, I think is a better example because it's much more similar to life in that, there's inputs, there's outputs, and you have free will choice. You can go left, you can go right, you can go up, you can go down. There's choice everywhere throughout video games, but it's still, for the most part, a narrow corridor, a narrow like stream of this is the activity you're doing. The person who coded that video game cannot physically enter the code and be in that world. They can express their selves in that code for example i coded a very rudimentary uh, using a tutorial very rudimentary cart racing game i cannot put myself in the cart racing game i can put an avatar in the game that kind of looks like me and he can kind of sit in the car he might be able to walk around he might be able to drive the car the car can drive but You can't put the person into the game. You can't put the creator into the game. You can't put the architect into the walls.
1: Hmm. I feel like I don't know if this is right or like even is going to make any sense. But a lot of people ask the question, well, you say God is here. Then why is he hidden? Like, why is he not like physically right in front of me? Or even why doesn't he speak or which he does, by the way, or... Why can't I, why can't I hear like when he's here or not? And I feel like that's a good way to answer that is that the creator of, of, of like a video game or a movie, like you can see their touch in the game just by the way that it's animated or by the way that the story's written or anything like that. I feel like the, like just the created universe has God's fingerprints all over it and you just have to know how to look at it. And you know how to look at it? Read your Bible. It'll tell you how to look at it.
0: (laughs) C.S. Lewis goes on. When I open that particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I'm under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. He continues. I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone had to obey the law of gravity. That whereas... The sender of my morality tells me to obey the law of my human nature. I am not yet within a hundred miles of the God of Christian theology. All I have got to is a something which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. Because after all, the only other thing we know is matter, and you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. Of course, it need not be very like a mind, still less like a person. He goes on with a subnote after this chapter, and that subnote goes To complete, I ought to mention that in between view called life force philosophy, or creative evolution, or emergent evolution. And I think I mentioned this a little bit last week, and that was simply that um, a lot of these mechanisms of morality, etc., come from an evolutionary thrust inside of us to propel us to be better because it's better for our species, etc., this, that, and the other thing. Um, He goes on... People who hold this view say that the small variations by which life on this planet evolved from the lowest forms to man were not due to chance, but to the striving or purposeness of a life force. We must ask them then whether by life force they mean something with a mind or not. If they do then, a mind bringing life into existence and leading it to perfection is really a god and their view is thus identical with the religious. One reason why many people find creative evolution so attractive is that it gives one much of the emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. You want to do something rather shabby? The life force, being only a blind force with no morals and no mind, will never interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. He ends, Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has yet seen? That totally uh, flipped my perspective on it because it really breaks apart, I think, and he hasn't gone into this yet, but I think it breaks down what a big part of the purpose of Christianity is, and that's to really live by its tenets and its laws because they are the law of God. And this emergent evolution uh, life force philosophy is a like half-in, half-out philosophy. And like the materialist view, it says, these things happened for this reason, we have evidence, but it doesn't answer your question. Whereas the religious view is, our evidence is our lived experience, our brothers' and sisters' testimonies, we have a general answer for you. (laughs) But it's not perfect. It's still somehow closer, and it's more hard to grapple with than the others, but I think that could be because it's getting closer to the truth. That was chapters three and four of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. We further investigated morality and the consequences of morality in our world, how it led to laws, and how we live in societies that overwhelmingly agree to this morality uh, because of the laws they have and share. We then delve deeper into the conflicting views, the materialist philosophy, the life force philosophy, and then the religious philosophy and determine the similarities and key differences between. We've still not gotten to the Christian God.
1: Yeah, I don't think we will for a little while. Okay.
0: No. Not for another few chapters at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um we thank you so much for joining us. We hope this was entertaining and informing that you learned something or roused maybe thought of the gospel differently. Uh we have a few closing, what are they, verses yeah. from the Bible to share. Alyssa, would you like to share yours first?
1: Um, sure. Mine is Romans one twenty. It says, um, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse.
0: I love that. Yeah. Would you mind reading it one more time? It's a little bit weird.
1: Yeah, it is. You know what? Um, hold on. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try a different translation. This one's NLT. I was reading from NIV before. Um, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God.
0: Wow. yeah way different than the other one yeah so, so strange I wonder what the Greek is on there
1: yeah yeah um
0: that's beautiful yeah
1: basically it's just Paul is just saying that like we are created everything around us is created therefore we should expect a creator we don't really have an excuse for creating other reasons why we are why we exist or the things around us exist mm.
0: Mm, I love that yeah Uh, The verse I found is from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writes, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. I love that and it reminded me so much of this topic, so much of the Christian argument because the Christian argument is so faith-based and there is so much weakness perceived in that faith and that is exactly where the strength of Christianity and Christ come from as exemplified by Christ on the cross. I just think it's so beautiful how that uh, that theme is prevalent throughout the whole story. Of mankind all throughout Christianity throughout the Old Testament as well and through these very discussions we're really talking about a thin margin of experience that we all share that is so important because it's so hard to define and I think that's just so cool yeah Yeah. thanks For listening to our podcast, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends, won't you? This has been the Christian Cookie Club, number two, covering chapters three and four of Mere Christianity. I am your co-host, Yale.
1: This is Alyssa. Uh Uh-huh.
0: And we will see you next time. Have a great week.